Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about middle-aged man-child Danny Moran and his latest string of misadventures with his close circle of man-child man-buddies. It's an extremely fun podcast with a lot of good jokes in it. For example, at the start of the podcast, Danny wakes up and there's a deer next to his bed, and the deer urinates in his face. And then it runs down the hall into the bathroom where Danny's eldest son Sam is showering, and it urinates on him. And Danny lures the deer out of the house using a monkey doll belonging to his daughter Becky. And then the deer rips apart the monkey doll, and Becky is really upset. Absolutely classic stuff. You're gonna love it, is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the Adam Sandler comedy sequel, Grown Ups 2. Instead, it's just a long chat about films between two grown-ups. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, a rambunctious American comedian with a hollow, desperate look in his eyes, Danny Moran. Hello, hello. It's good to be back, but there's no hiding the fact that since we were last on... The world has drastically changed. I'm of course referring to the fact that Abel Gonza's 1927 version of Napoleon has been fully restored and is about to be released in cinemas. I will be reviewing that film and telling you why I gave it cinq étoiles. It's five stars in French. Right. And in a new segment, we review a rival, specifically our biggest rival, Mark Commode. Personally, I don't like his rockabilly dress sense and the fact that he thinks Twilight is good. And he also thinks Manhunter is the best Hannibal Lecter movie, which is fucking nuts. Oh, sorry, wait, I've misread that. We're reviewing Arrival, the sci-fi film about a linguistic professor trying to decipher an alien's language in order to prevent things from escalating into violence. In honour of that film's message, I will be giving my review in the form of a series of abstract ink drawings which will spray directly onto Sam's face. We also discussed the news of an upcoming Al Capone biopic, the news of an upcoming Freddie Mercury biopic, and the news of one of cinema's greatest missed casting opportunities, all of which should give me just enough time before my latest impression – Billy Bob Fortin eating some Brazilian nut toffee from Fortin's. Well, this is nice toffee. <laughs> how, does he, how does he talk? How does he talk? I didn't feel like you haven't Bob. maybe put in full preparation for this oh, impression. Oh, I was in Sling Blade. I love this toffee. <laughs> Brilliant. Very good impression. Yeah, he was in Sling Blade and he was enjoying that toffee. Films, 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 films
regular correspondee, friend of the show, good man, Chris Young has written in. He says, Hi, film chat. Extremely French actress Isabelle Huppert has revealed that she has recently bought a cinema in Paris. How cool is that? Anyway, this got me thinking. What would be the best actor to run slash curate a cinema that you can think of? James Franco's cinema would be hilarious. Yeah, I think you can take that sentence and just change cinema for every word and that sentence would still make sense. What, just James Franco's uh, scrambled eggs would be <laughs> hilarious. hilarious. Yeah. yeah, He's such a zany character. He Whatever he turns his hands to is going to be hilarious. Well, it certainly would be hilarious if it only showed his own films. What do you think, Danny? What, uh, who, would well, you, who would you have curating a cinema? I guess there's a question similar to... It's first, like, who do you want to hang out with, I guess? Movie stars, because they might be around. And also, who do you think has got really good taste? So who are, like, the sort of cinephile actors? Right. Like, people who work with good people, you must, like... So I think, like, Michael Fassbender must have good taste in movies, right? Because he's always working with cool people. Oh, I see what you mean. That's a good approach to this question. But then I thought... The real, the best answer I came up with was Stanley Tucci, because he's a real foodie. You know, he has, uh, he cooks a lot. And I want to, you know, when you go to Odeon, it's like, why not order something from the bar and our mixologist? And it just looks like shit. It's like, why well, order that? Like, I don't want to go to Odeon, Baisley's, Whitewater, whatever it <laughs> Fuck is. Fuck that. Yeah. But I think Stanley Tucci can make some delicious food. That's true. That's an excellent option. Yeah. I was like thinking more along the lines of, uh, where Chris was going with just like an eccentric person in in the Hollywood world, yeah, and how their um, cinema would be. So the first person that sprang to mind was Sheila Berth because he everything's an art project for him. Sure. So his cinema would probably be like totally mad. They everyone have a paper bag on their head when they're watching the film. <laughs> um, strangers could come up and touch them during the movie. You know things like sure. that. You might get raped. It'd just be called like hashtag my cinema in capital letters or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> um second bit of correspondence comes from regular correspondent olivia waring she sent us a news story about michael stipe the lead singer and songwriter from rem talking about what could have been a great role for him here is him discussing just that with alec baldwin on alec baldwin's inferior podcast here's the thing was acting ever in the cards for you did you ever think about going off and making films and acting i i was asked um i was offered the role um of the psychopathic killer in the film seven they wanted someone very unexpected and unfortunately my band was going on tour the same month that they were started filming so I wasn't, and, and it required nothing all, all i had to do was run down some hallways and look scary there was no dialogue um, I'm so glad you didn't do that, by the way. I would have loved doing it. I, 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 I didn't like the way that movie ended. I, they, they changed something at the end that meant that Brad Pitt's, rather than Morgan Freeman's character, killed Kevin Spacey in the end, which shouldn't have happened. Uh, it didn't make sense. But, but yeah, I mean, I, no, I don't, I always felt like just because something is available to you through fame or through connections or through proximity, it doesn't mean that you should say yes to it. A lot to unpack there. A lot to unpack. Sounds like in an original draft of Seven, it wasn't such a big role. Yeah. Because Kevin Spacey does a lot of serial killer philosophizing in the movie, right? Well, he's got that one big scene at the end. He's got a... Yeah, well, he talks in the car and, you know, he talks to them a lot. Yeah. Um, that would require a lot of acting. It sounds like originally the serial killer was just a kind of shadowy guy in the hallways. And uh, they were just like... The, the filmmaker's conception is that it would be Michael Stipe and you'd be like, wow, it's the lead singer from R.E.M. That's really surprising. And it would make it extra scary. What's something? a bit weird is that he seemed quite flattered by the offer. 
but it's like no acting required. It was like you're basically the offer translates as like I think you look like a fucking creep. <laughs> yeah, and you'd be ideal. Yeah, you're a famous looking, you're a famous creep. <laughs> yeah, famous creepy looking man. Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll play that. I wish I could have played that, but the band was on. <laughs> yeah, and I also enjoyed his criticisms of the plot developments at the end of Seven. Bit of a spoiler in the clip there for Seven. Do you think it would be um, a better movie if, like, right at the end, after the, he opens the box, just, like, Orange Crush comes in by R.E.M.? <laughs> Why that song? Because it's the only R.E.M. song that came to mind <laughs> when I was constructing that joke I in thought, my brain. I thought maybe it was, like, some ingenious in some way. I think that song's about the Vietnam War, oh. so I thought you, you know, could make some comment. What's the frequency, Kenneth? That's a bit like what's in the box. Yeah. <laughs> no, my favorite I Am song is Severed Paltrow Head in Box. <laughs> they should have played that one. <laughs> Thinking about it, he's never really gotten over being passed over that role. You look at all his outputs. <laughs> They're all like fiddly bound references. About it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Spacey what? stole my life. <laughs> Spacey stole my life. Die, Kevin, die. All those, all those great hits. Why is it always raining? <laughs> <laughs> what city is it set in anyway in the movie 7? I love that song. Yeah. yeah. It seems like a bit of a weirdo. I think he would have made a good serial killer. I hope yeah. they cast him in uh, 8, the sequel. If it turns out that he's actually a serial killer in real life, I wouldn't be that surprised to me. The producer you. would be like, this is awesome. Everyone laughed at me when I cast Michael, but he's actually killed many people. Murder a lot of humans. Okay, <laughs> this is awesome. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's been to print. Sam, some news. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so. A biopic that's been brewing in Hollywood for seems ages has been a Queen biopic, or specifically about Freddie Mercury. And this has been going on for seven or eight years. Originally, it was Sasha Baron Cohen in the role of Freddie Mercury, and that was trundling along with a script by Peter Morgan, who did Frost Nixon and all those, and The Crown most recently. He loves Re- to write about real stuff. He loves it. And uh, basically, the band and Sasha Baron Cohen had a big difference of opinion about the direction the movie should go on. I think Queen wanted to be more wholesome and a bit more celebration of the band and Sasha Baron Cohen all the warts and all, yeah. you know, about uh, Freddie Mercury's sort of crazy hedonistic lifestyle. Uh, so that uh, came to nothing. And then for a while, um, different people such as Tom Hooper, David Fincher and Stephen Frears at one point was attached to it. And then kind of recently-ish, Dexter Fletcher was attached to direct with Ben Wisher as the lead. That's gone out of the window, and now the star of Mr. Robot, Rami Malek, is in the role of Freddie Mercury with Brian Singer directing. Brian Singer? Yeah. Right. He's gay. Freddie Mercury is gay, so he must have great insights great into choice. the gay lifestyle of a... Of a, gay, of a gay man. Of a gay man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, this is a very nuanced take on that choice of director from you. Yeah. Um... Uh, yeah, Remy Malik, does he look... I mean, I thought the main reason that they picked that Sasha Baron Cohen was being taught up is probably because people kept telling him at parties that he looked like Freddie Mercury. Yeah, I don't think Remy Malik looks like... He doesn't look like anything. He doesn't look like anything. He's strange. <laughs> he's got a completely unique features. Yeah, he's got huge eyes, a very prominent jaw. Yeah. Doesn't really look like Freddie Mercury, he's I He's quite think. sort of bug-eyed kind of man. <laughs> yeah, he's got a strange kind of voice, but it's a bit like that. Yeah. He's uh he's a bit like um he reminds me of um, Charlie Brooker's line about Matt Smith 
that he looks like a really handsome man who's been hit in the face with a shovel. <laughs> I think Remy Malik is similar. Yeah, but I think um, I'm not really excited for that. I'm not a huge Queen fan, but it's hard. Like one of the cool things about music biopics, I think, is like the actors doing the music. Yeah, but you can't fake... like they did in Control. Yeah, or, or Walk the Line. Yeah, he did like a, a Viking thing. It's a really good Johnny Cash approximation. Yeah, but like I don't, I don't imagine Remy Malik has uh, Freddie Mercury's pipes. You know, that's you pretty impossible know. range. He's to... going to turn that weird croaky voice to spectacular operatic. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to <laughs> ride my bike. It's more like the Kevin, uh, sorry, the William Shatner version of the um, of the Queen song. Don't stop me now. Um, Actually, that's how he sings. Um, I don't think it's a good idea. Sorry, Queen. The script I'm learning from reading this news story is uh, going to be by this guy called Anthony McCartan, oh. who also did the script for The Theory of Everything. Oh, fuck. Okay, this movie's taking a fucking nosediving quality. <laughs> <laughs> that guy can't write for shit. Yeah, which I remember you hated, but uh, I didn't see Yeah, it. I hate it. Okay, this is going to be an awful, saccharine piece of shit. I can tell already. Anyway, yeah, we'll see how it turns out. I mean... Um, I was in a Brian Singer film, of course. Yes, you were. You were in the Jack the Giant Slayer or Jack the Giant Killer or whatever it's called in the end. Uh, yeah. And you were, you were playing a soldier? Yeah, I was playing a soldier. And what did you have to do in that role? Let me talk you through my day. Okay. Please do. I was dressed up as a knight. Um, I had to react to a series did, did of... Did they give you a costume or did you have to bring your own? <laughs> I had to bring my own. <laughs> but uh, And then the person who has the best costume got to be in the film. <laughs> <laughs> so I won. And uh, in the pivotal scene, I haven't actually seen the film... Uh, the join is coming into the courtyard after a battle scene, yeah. and I had to react to a series of cues and like where the giant's eyeline was going to be. Yeah, so it was like one and like one to five was like they're coming closer, and I also kind of they didn't direct me this way, but I figured five sh- I should like pitch my performance. You know, one I can't give it all on one; I've got to build up to it on five. Yeah, obviously. so one I was like, oh, that's a giant. Two I was like, oh, okay, a bit close. Three I was like, ooh. Four, I was like, ah, oh, fuck. And then five, I was like, oh, no. Wow, that's really good. Act- what? <laughs> exactly. Katie's saying it was a bit too loud, but that's just. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good acting. That's good acting. Next news item. Very exciting. Josh Trank, the sort of disgraced director of Fantastic Four, has weaseled his way back into Hollywood's good graces. Wow. Incredible. Yeah, he directed Fantastic Four, which had a famously very troubled production, came out and was absolutely slated, including by its director, who tweeted something about how the film could have been great if they hadn't, like, the studio... his vision. ...hadn't messed with his vision, um, which, you know, may have been true, but I don't think that many people were convinced. But people viewed it as a bit of a bridge-burning move. And yet... And yet... The man is back. He's back. Maybe so few people saw Fantastic Four that it's as if it was never made. And people are just like, let's get that hot kid who made Chronicle. Um, and we've got a... <laughs> Why hasn't he made a movie? <laughs> yeah, that Chronicle movie was pretty great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
and he has teamed up with Tom Hardy for an Al Capone biopic. Sick. Tom Hardy already has form playing hard-nosed uh, gangster types. Yeah. Most recently in Legend. He did it twice. He loved it so much. Yeah, he played twin gangsters yeah. who look different, um, but still played by the same guy for some reason. And um, is he, he's also a gangster in... Um, L- Lawless? Uh, oh, yeah, he's a gangster in Lawless. But I was thinking of the TV show, Peaky Blinders. Oh, yeah. He's a gangster he loves that, playing, he? He's like a sort of Jewish gangster in that. Yeah. And he's like a sort of southern gangster, and he was like an East End gangster, and now Chicago gangster. He's doing all the gangsters. Yeah, exactly. Every he, nationality and, you know, Well, he's good at crime. doing uh, accents, isn't he, Tom Hardy? He just well, disappears into his angry, growly <laughs> roles. I'm not sure if he's really that good at accents. <laughs> he's good at making up accents that don't exist. Actually, I think one of the joys of this movie is going to be his attempt at a Chicago accent. That's true, yeah. It is going to be pretty funny. Because in, um, in The Revenant, and he just invented an accent. And it's just <laughs> he's not from anywhere. And it's, he did exactly the same thing in Mad Max Fury Road. He's just like, Why'd you leave? From... <laughs> Why'd you leave? <laughs> Why'd you leave? <laughs> That's the best bit. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether he's doing a Chicago accent or just like from the Tom Hardy verse, just unique, <laughs> just pulled directly it? out of his brain or some other part of his body. The film's f- is going to be written and directed by Trank. Wow. According to this news story, um, it will take a unique focus, catching up with a criminal at the age of 47, following nearly a decade of imprisonment as dementia rots Capone's mind. It's going to be like the uh, Iron Lady but uh, with Al Capone, <laughs> with like Capone. the beginning of the Iron Lady. Dennis! <laughs> is he going to be like trying to buy milk and like wondering where Dennis the is? The first scene is going to be him trying to buy milk, thinking about Dennis Thatcher. Um, the past becomes present <laughs> as harrowing memories of his violent and brutal origins melt into his waking life. Sounds very exciting. The movie is going to be called Fonzo. And there's been a few movies made about Al Capone already. Yeah. The original Scarface. And Public Enemy Number One. Well, that, yeah, so based on him, right? His sort based of, on him. his legend. Yeah, um, which are also nicknames of Al Capone, yeah. and uh, I guess they're having to go to like B tier nicknames, right? Um, like Fonzo, which just sounds a bit like the Fonz. Yeah. Do you think people are going to hey. think it's a movie about the Fonz, <laughs> or a cross between the Fonz and Gonzo journalism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was sort of wondering about other Al Capone nicknames, other options they could have gone for. Sure. Do you think any of these would have been better titles for the Play movie? On me. King Alphonse, The Big Fella, Big Al, Snorky, <laughs> which is apparently <laughs> slang for an elegant, sharp dresser. Uh, on this blog, it says, though this nickname was only really used by close friends, it was no secret that Al loved fine clothes. So that's why they called him Snorky. Al Brown, Albert Costa, the big shot, <laughs> I think the big guy. <laughs> I, to be honest with you, I think those are all a bit better than Fonzo. I think Snorky is particularly good. Snorky. First of all, wasn't Snorky's name of the, is that dolphin from the episode of The Simpsons? Snorky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Snorky also, talk man. Wasn't he a massive cokehead? Like he lost the middle bit of his nose because of cocaine. It sounds a bit like, like nose snorty. related, like snorty. <laughs> He's snorky. Yeah, Snorty also would have been a good name <laughs> for the movie. Well, he's always entertaining, isn't he, Tom Hardy? May he long yeah. play nutters. He's a bit. He's... he's in that category a bit like um, uh, Nicolas Cage, where but I think a bit better even, where he can just hold your attention even if he's in like a trash film. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of him playing a gangster who's got dementia is actually extremely appealing. <laughs> and I just hope that Josh Trank can complete his film. You know, like goes in with a finished script and like 
makes a film that makes sense and they release it you know what we're gonna watch it it's gonna be a masterpiece we're gonna go rewatch fantastic four and realize i get it now oh we're such idiots it all makes sense the track man did it again <laughs> uh you just want to give everyone nicknames yeah now yeah, yeah. i love it Tranky. Tranky. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask continually poor? How did Danny form the judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, Sam, you know how I love to, you know, be the sort of cool, real cineast member of the Film Chat family. Yeah. I've seen shit you can't even sit through. Yeah. Because I'm hardcore. And I was like, what's the most hardcore thing I can do while Sam's away? Watch a almost six hour black and white silent film on Napoleon. Yeah, and it just so happened. Just so happened that, that one was available. <laughs> exactly. So Napoleon, which is uh, written and directed by Abel Gantz, it is this epic silent film which was initially released in 1927, where it was hugely acclaimed, and uh, but for whatever reason, uh, various reels were lost, and it was sort of lost to the midst of time, as many of the films from that period was, and uh, over the over the last 80 years various versions have surfaced and if you are a nerd like me you can look at the wikipedia page and watch all the different uh sort of years go by and like various versions premiered like this one's three hours long this one's four hours long they found another bit they kept on adding it yeah but this one uh which is coming out this weekend is the most complete version since the original premiere it is five hours and 40 minutes long well, how it, how long do you know how long the original it was something like it's like six and a half hours wow. there's still stuff missing apparently and this version is the culmination or just the ongoing process of this 50-year process of this work by uh, film historian ken brownlow and it's been digitally restored and carl davis who did the score 30 years ago has re-recorded the score in 7.1 dolby surround sound but i saw it with a live orchestra because our mate dan got me a ticket and i saw it and it was sick so the plot <laughs> is basically about Napoleon from his childhood until uh, France invade Italy. So it's a very pro-good Napoleon half of his life. Yeah. It skips out the whole... Before despotic. the tyrannical, despotic yeah, 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 era, yeah. yeah. And so it starts when he's at military school uh, called Brian College, and he's bullied because of his uh, Corsican accent. And the first scene is a snowball fight, which shows off Napoleon's... Even then, when he was like six, he was a strategic genius. Right. He's marshalling the, the kids. Exactly. Yeah. And it, the film shows the revolution, shows his uh, rising through the ranks, how he made enemies, his courtship with Josephine de Bohames. That's how you pronounce her name. And, <laughs> That's good. Uh, That's good for and all the sort of events up until this invasion of Italy. And because it's not a movie... I can't really show you a clip, but I can play a bit of Carl Davis's score, which is sick. Cool. Let's hear it. I didn't hear it, but Danny did some <laughs> arm movements and that 
that that was beautiful um so this film is awesome it is great both in terms of what it's doing for the time it was made like it feels like it was made yesterday and it's also just great on its own terms you know you put it into its historical context it's just more impressive but it's already impressive this was supposed to be one of six films Abel Gans was going to make, but he made this one and it was so difficult and couldn't get the funding for the other uh, five. So uh, it ends with Napoleon on a high and it's a real fun movie. Oh, so it was going to be like six Napoleon films? Yeah. Jeez. Because uh, there's a lot, an of, exhaustive lot of, chronicle. lot of Napoleon. Yeah. And because it's just the opening stretch, it's really fun because it's full of like uh, the dream of the revolution is very much still alive in the movie and it kind of informs everything. So it's all about the triumph of will and liberty and just, you know, fighting oppression and tyranny. Uh, Does and, it have a lot of, like, evil Aristos in it? Or? Yeah, and um, it's a lot of um, flag-waving and the goodness of people will rise up. It's pretty much like someone has taken the National Anthem and made them to a film. Yeah. And uh, the National Anthem, Marseille, features prominently in the film. So Napoleon is a fascinating character for many reasons. And the one the film focuses on is that he is both uh, sort of a symbol and a symbolic of revolutions. And the early passages of the film juxtapose his tough childhood with uh, the actual spirit in France at the time. And like the sort of persecution he was getting, he was kind of bullied for his accent and, you know, the sort of snobbier kids because he was like lower middle class kind of reflects the unrest in France. And so he's like a kind of product of, he is like the revolution incarnate. And he's also just this total badass like this film is in love of napoleon it's a very pro-napoleon movie as you'd imagine um, yeah but um i think even the most boring unimaginative film if it just documented what his life was like would be fascinating because he's just a succession of total total baller moves <laughs> this guy's my hero yeah guy's dope he's dope he's a very uncomplicated hero and he's like fearless and he just has his principles and if anyone like uh tries to make him break them he just like shuts them down immediately he's like no and there's a great bit where he goes to like the revolutionaries headquarters and just steals their flag of france like you don't deserve this really? <laughs> <laughs> i'll bring this back when you deserve it um so one of the things the film is most famous for is how technically innovative it is and it is kind of staggering uh what they kind of pull off and i think i even though I like to think of myself as some kind of cinephile. I associate silent films with just sort of Buster Keaton and Chaplin with like big wide shots where all the storytelling is like, like it's almost like film theatre. Like all the storytelling is what's going on in the screen and the screen is just documenting it. But it's really cinematic. And I was, that's often like a vague term, but I think the best way to describe it is that all the storytelling works in the way only cinema can do it. So it uses lots of close-ups and montage and tracking shots, all of which had only been invented, were either invented in this film or like six months before they made it. Hmm. And it makes it feel incredibly modern. And there's like one epic battle sequence, which is like sort of proto Helm's Deep of like rain and horses charging and cannons. And you've got, I wouldn't be surprised if someone died while they did it. Yeah. Um, but it's just like, it's kind of mind blowing. You're watching like, oh my God, how'd they pull this off? And that is... Um, complemented by this brilliant score by Carl Davis. It's sort of a weird amalgamation of uh, music that was contemporary for the time of Napoleon. So there's like Beethoven weaved in and other famous people whose names... I think Beethoven me. was a big fan of Napoleon. They I fell out, though. They fell out. Oh, they fell out. Yeah. Right, yeah. But Beethoven's seventh is used. 
Right, yeah. The the, the slow mo- the slow movement. The slow movement. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Used used a lot. Yeah, and there's also this great bit which is about them writing the national anthem. Uh, which is weird for a silent movie to have a whole sequence based around a song. Mm. Uh, well, I was but, thinking that when you started talking about him being bullied for his Corsican accent at the beginning, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> this movie was really going for the sound-based uh, yeah. sequences. Um, but the French national anthem is so stirring. It's like the most, it's the best national anthem by far. There's a really clever bit of scoring by Carl Davis where, uh, as like the notes are being passed around, they're learning the song. Like the sort of little refrains from the music comes in, and mm. it's like over 20 minutes. This all slowly builds and builds and builds. And I saw this with an orchestra, so it was obviously awesome. But I hear 7.1 surround sound is also very nice. It's also very nice. Yeah. So don't be put off by that. Um, I think the way I describe it is like it's a film about Napoleon, which is a bit like he directed it. And Abel Gantz is as ambitious as Napoleon was and is like as risk taking in his filmmaking as it's almost like this is the only way you could do a Napoleon biopic. If it was like really safe and boring and like by the numbers, it would yeah. be missing the point. Yeah, if he was making a biopic of a humble shoemaker, it would be 30 <laughs> minutes long, and it would just be one shot of a room. But yeah. it's of the great Napoleon! Exactly. Yeah, it would be the longest film ever conceived. But it was, yeah, it, it's really worth seeing, and I don't know if it's because uh, this, the kind of message of the movie kind of films feels timely, because it's all about, even though it's all about these, you know, b- destroying the British, and it's very bloody, and like winning victories, it's all about in the search of freedom and liberty, and there was a bit... Uh, in the movie when Napoleon says like Europe will become a single people and it'll be like a common fatherland for everybody and just the entire <laughs> everyone just it was a spontaneous applause like strong Remainer crowd in the, oh wow great and uh, yeah it's just so infused with uh, pro-European Union message yeah it's a very passionate movie and um, very spirited and you kind of really sense that and that kind of carries you through the film and it's also not a, it really zips along past. It's like, I know it's like six hours, but there's intervals. So it's like more like binge watching a really good, it's like little two hour chunks. Yeah. And they have like chapters, which kind of climax, you know, every little sequence has a conclusion. Um, I was going to ask you about the experience of watching it because obviously the running time is the main obstacle for, you know, anyone who is thinking of checking it out. Yeah. So would you recommend approaching it a bit like a miniseries? If it's in chapters, it's almost like episodic and... Yeah, exactly. You can kind of sit down with it and take it in bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it doesn't uh, drag at any point. It's just so... The revolution, I feel, is such a bizarre time because all the rules of society were broken down and being reformed. And in this sort of, like, milieu, like, uh, it's not just fascinating, but, like, weird. Yeah. And, like, it was a time where, like, one person could make a difference just by your strength of character. Like, society broke down to the point where, like, if you're just forceful enough, you could just get stuff done. Uh, which just makes for fascinating uh, storytelling. Sounds, and sounds something so, the sounds film cool. capitalizes on. So uh, everyone says it's like one of the best films ever made. And I think it's uh, very good. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack. And telephone friends so you know where she's at. Like that's enough, now back to film chat. Well, I've been in the US but as has Katie Katie and I have been hanging out together in the States but I have found time to watch a movie well I actually watched a movie over there uh, The Handmaiden but it's not out for several more months which I didn't realise in the UK so that's no good but I squeezed one in today went to see Arrival which I believe you've also seen Danny checked out at the London Film Festival yeah that's the way I check you, out most of my movies you get all your movies um, it's the new movie by uh, Dennis Villeneuve directed by him 
and uh, his his follow up to Sicario, and it stars Amy Adams as a linguist who is called upon by the military to um, help them deal with uh, aliens who have arrived in giant gray shells um, that are scattered, hovering across the globe. And the U.S. military is investigating the shell that's in uh, Montana or something. Um, And they've been communicating with the aliens and they need a linguist to help them translate. And she does that alongside Jeremy Renner, who's there as a theoretical physicist. So I thought this movie was pretty good. It was very interesting. It's like... uh, got a kind of a very Villeneuvean sensibility like a similar thing to Sicario of um, a slightly clinical style that's uh, heavy on atmosphere rumbling unease throughout and really like loud sound effects just for extra impact it reminded me a bit of watching like Michael Mann movies where he just has turned the gunshot noises up to 11 so that like you know (laughs) you feel the extra excitement of people shooting guns and the beginning of this movie, there's like a helicopter that passes over Amy Adams' house, and you feel like the whole cinema's going to shake apart. It's like, whoa! Oh my god, it's dangerous to have those things flying around. Yeah, I think it does a. Uh, it's a very like evocative movie, and there's a lot of interesting ideas in it. And I I like the fact that um, the the premise of the film, where these aliens turn up in shells across the earth, and people are trying to get in and understand what they're saying, um, means that it promises that it will be an ideas driven movie like yeah. the con the whole concept of the movie means that the film has got to have something to say um and the way that it executes its message is uh quite efficient even though the message is ultimately like a relatively straightforward you know sort of universal one about working together or whatever yeah um but uh it it, it plays out well and there's a lot of quite clever stuff with language and I was reading a lot of linguist blogs where they were quite thrilled that the hero is a linguist and there's like some uh, sort of slightly technical or um, more delved into linguistic topics that the film handles relatively deftly. Yeah. What do you make of it? I, I liked it a lot. I didn't like Sicario. Crazy no. opinion. And I've since watched Enemy and Prisoners. I've brushed up on my Villeneuve so I could form an opinion whether he's a hack or a genius or not. Yeah. And I I do like him. I think he's... A really talented director whose films I'm slightly mixed on. Uh, but I really like this. And I think his, as you were saying, his talent for creating atmosphere and sort of imbuing stuff with a sense of unease and a, like meaning. You think, you know, everything is there for a purpose in his movies. Really fits this movie about people trying to find the meaning of things. And I think that just the very fact that the film is about trying to understand someone uh, just makes you work a bit harder as an audience member it's like you just start copying the characters slightly because they're like it's almost like i was kind of straining as i was watching it i was like you know paying more attention yeah i've got to process this and i think structurally it's very clever in the way the uh character's relationship with the alien sort of mirrors the audience's relationship with the film and i thought that was very I can't really. It's kind yeah. Of, well, it's yeah. like well, like you're trying to de- uh, determine, work out what the film is trying to tell you. Well, in that you have like preconceived notions about this genre going yeah. in, which is some of which are fulfilled and some of which are sort of subverted. In the same way, I feel like when they meet the aliens, they've got these ideas of what might they might say and they might be saying, and then that, that slowly the truth is revealed. Yeah. And the way that sort of they parcel that out and the sort of moment of realization. And I, I can't really go into it. But... No, no, no. You, yeah, it's um, it's not a movie that you want to spoil too much at all. Yeah, but I just think there's a very clever mirroring of 
the audience's reaction to the film and the character's reaction to the aliens. Yeah, I, I, I think it's true that it's a very well-paced film and it knows when to take a bit of time um, and when to kind of skip through things a bit. And the first sequence where they go into the alien shell, um, I thought was particularly good. He conjures up very well this um, sense of like unease and it's like mildly almost sinister, but not like actively hostile. Uh, and there's a lot of awe in it as well. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of both like wondrous and slightly terrifying at the same time. Um, and you're never quite sure exactly how much danger you're supposed to imagine the characters are in. I think kind of key to the film's success is Amy Adams, and she is really understated. She's I don't know if like there's talks of her like getting an Oscar because I think she's been nominated so many times now they just have to give you one eventually. Yeah, but she's sort of the actress who's like who's too good to be nominated. She doesn't do much grandstanding, or there's no like real big speech moments, or like it's very pragmatic. Like all her dialogue, yeah, is it's so... quite a quiet role. As well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think there's there's probably a essay or more likely a Tumblr blog to be written about like the use of silence and like loud moments in the movie to like show the difference between the aliens all the alien stuff is super quiet all the humans are loud and mean and hostile yeah um but i think she was brilliant in it and there's a sort of emotional side of the story which i can't say i was particularly caught up in i've heard reviews of people saying they were like in tears and stuff oh really and i was like uh, not really but um you kind of you buy it though and I think because the movie's so understated, it's not a problem if you're not welling up at it. Yeah, it's I just agree. well I done. Agree. Yeah. Um, it's not like a movie that's trying to make you cry. Uh, yeah. It's just, you know, it kind of presents it out there and gives you the space as an audience to sort of, you know, gauge your own reaction. Yeah. It reminded me of Interstellar in a lot of ways. I thought it was quite a Christopher Nolan-y film in that it's like uh, this sort of conceptual driven sci-fi that's very widescreen and like epic feeling. Um, where the core of the story is living this emotional message, but the sort of like tone of it is in a slightly antiseptic way. And some of the more emotional stuff was a little bit like, well, kind of similar to how they do it in Interstellar or even something like Inception as well, um, where it's just flickers of things and you're supposed to just, you know, grasp a whole lifetime through sure, yeah, you yeah. Know, a handful of moments and that, that will make you buy into the characters and stuff. But one of the things I really liked about Interstellar is the way that it tries to evoke awe in an audience from something that you've seen in countless other movies, like done quite prosaically, where the act of just simply going into space is like the most incredible, um, eventful thing in Interstellar that is supposed to like blow you away as an audience. And uh, um, and in this film, it's a similar kind of thing where it's just like uh, there's a bit in the spaceship where gravity goes a bit wonky and the film really dwells on how incredible it is <laughs> that the gravity has changed slightly. You know, and even though that they do that in like a million movies and you've seen it loads of times, you're suddenly like, wow, that, that would be bizarre <laughs> if the gravity changed. That would you know? be crazy. But it's like, it's really, it goes out of its way to invest all of the exploratory stuff with like um, maximum impact, um, which I liked. I think if I did have uh, my makeup play with the film is that in its final act, it becomes um, very plot orientated uh, in a way which is like you feel the the sort of the gears of the script moving a lot. It's like we've got to wrap up this thing, and so and I think it's partly because the rest of the movie is quite graceful and sort of slow, and it kind of builds things very nicely. And it's like actually, shit, we got twenty minutes of this movie left. We got to we got to wrap this thing up. Uh, but that's like a small yeah. I think quibble. I think that there's some bum notes in the script. 
there's mo- mostly i think maybe maybe it's because the film is so gracefully directed that when the there's like a few lines that are kind of clangers yeah and uh they stick out a little bit and i think some of that plot stuff falls into that and jeremy renner does not have very much to do in it um he's got a sort of important plot function but he's just a sort of nice man he wears glasses he wears glasses he's nice he could be basically played by anyone and i think the film will be the same (laughs) um i think he was integral to the film (laughs) i think it's good i think it's worth seeing it's very moody it's very beautiful to look at it's got um a lot of uh atmosphere of unease and awe is very good at making things that are familiar from other genre films feel kind of fresh and presenting them to you in a very committed way and it's well performed and for linguists out there they'll be excited to see themselves be the hero on screen finally finally so many evil linguists over the years my favorite film stars bridget bardo she's the queen and she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end so sam um because you left me for what was it two felt weeks like or so nine years felt like I got very lonely, very, very depressed. Uh, I just um, made a little cave out of your pants and watched films all day. Okay. And one of the films I watched was the one of the worst reviewed films of the year, Grimsby. Yeah, I was like, I got to have an opinion. We didn't we didn't want to part with cash at the time because it was so badly reviewed. But I, you know, it's online. Yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen. He couldn't get that Freddie Mercury gig, so instead he's playing this like working class uh, slob. Yeah, he's like a sort of Daily Mail view of the working class. He's a benefit, scrounging guy with like 12 kids. And his long-lost brother is played by Mark Strong. They're separated as kids, and he went off to become a suave, sexy James Bond type. The complete difference to his lifestyle of a sort of crazy drunk football hooligan. Anyway, uh, the film isn't very good, but there's one brilliant scene. Yeah, because there was a lot of talk when this movie came out that it was sort of extremely gratuitously gross and that there were sequences in it they could not possibly discuss on regular radio because even touching on the basic outline of what happens would be too filthy. Yeah, but luckily um, this isn't regular radio. This isn't regular radio, guys. So early This on... is pirate podcast zone. Exactly. No laws apply. We record this in international waters. That's why I could say that stuff about Brian Singer's history of rape. Yes, no, you could. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so early on in the film, they're in Sasha Baron Cohen's character's house, and the kids are watching a nature documentary about elephants, and the narrator says, the female elephant vagina can expand to 20 times its normal size. Yeah. And, you, and I'm thinking, that is... Your ears are pricking at that. That's setting up something. Flash forward an hour into the movie or so, they're in South Africa for some reason, uh, they're being chased. Mark Strong and Sasha Baron Cohen are being chased by some bad henchmen through the desert or whatever. They're like, where are we going to hide? There's some elephants there. Cut to, they're inside an elephant's vagina, like a massive fleshy cave. Uh, the bad guys think they've lost them. They they walk away. Uh, Mark Strong's like, check the coast is clear. Sasha Baron Cohen like peeps out of the elephant's vagina. Uh, he's like, oh no, because a male elephant comes with a swinging erect dick towards them before they know it the erect dick has like pushed Sasha Baron Cohen back inside into Mark Strong and like the huge dick is like just hitting him in the face over and over again yeah and the Sasha Baron Cohen's like I saw the documentary male elephants can have sex for up to like 20 hours we gotta get them off or we'll be here all day sure so Sasha Baron Cohen like reaches out of the vagina starts cradling the elephant's balls meanwhile Mark Strong 
award-winning Mark Strong. Yes. <laughs> I think he won a Tony or something, didn't he? Tony award-winning Mark Strong. <laughs> I don't know. Broad- Broadway some... star. Broadway star Mark Strong. <laughs> star of the imitation game. Uh, it starts <laughs> wanking off this massive elephant's cock. Yeah. Right? And together as a team, they're like, come on, come on, let's do it. They're really into it. And then the elephant like spunks all over Mark Strong's face. And he's like, uh, yeah. and then the elephant obviously retracts his now satisfied penis. And they're like, whew, I'd have to do that again. And then Sasha Baron Cohen checks the coast of clear again. And there's a queue of horny elephants. And he's like, oh no, it's the elephant bukkake party. And then another massive dick comes in and they're like sort of trying to fend it off. And then uh, it cuts to a scene later where they've obviously been, had to wank off a series of elephants. I think there was a bit, I watched this scene after you re- initially described it to me. Um, right at the end of the scene when the second dick comes in and it's like Sasha Baron Cohen has somehow ended up turned around and his trousers are down yeah, and it's bumps all over his bum. Yeah, he gets raped by an elephant. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that that was bold cinema. It, it was, makes the deer urinating good. scene in Grown Ups 2 seem like child's play. Well, exactly. You know, if you're going to do this gross out thing, yeah. you got to take it to the nth degree or what's the point? What's the you point? Know? Exactly. So I kind of think that scene was sort of genius. Yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed. I don't know if, like, I think maybe it just enjoyed you telling me about it more than, <laughs> more than the actual watching the scene itself. I'm quite looking forward to his next film because presumably he's got to go further, right? Yeah. What's the point if you don't, if you don't go even further? Okay. Well, that's the question. What's further than being wanking off a massive elephant and then being I, raped by one? I just think increasingly like large and long sex sequences with uh, wild animals. I know what it is, right? The sperm whale. It's got, it's got like a two meter long cock, right? I think it's prehensile. Prehensile? Yeah, like a, you know, it can like move around like a tail. The the cock can move around like a tail? I think so, yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, I've got, I sort of immediately had a sperm whale <laughs> cock fact to mind. I don't know why I did. But I have some vague idea that that's a thing. Well, surely in Grimsby 2, it'll be like, you know, fundable, more underwater sequences. <laughs> And, like, just the same thing will happen. Yeah. It's like, just follow my direction, and it cuts them inside a sperm whale's vagina. Yeah. And, like, check if the coast is clear. And then the massive sperm whale comes along with a massive prehensile team whale on cock. In a way, it would be even better, the gag, as a recurring one. They're always having to hide inside the vagina of a very large creature. And then just where they're going to escape, the the mate appears. <laughs> Um, anyway, this has been a thoroughly well-prepared <laughs> conclusion. Conclusion. No, no, it's good. You spun a good yarn, and I spunked a good yarn. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Brilliant gag. <laughs> don't know who I am anymore. Um, next week we'll be reviewing Dog Eat Dog, yeah, the new that? Paul Schrader film some, starring some... Nicolas Cage and Willem Dafoe. All right, fair enough. <laughs> some some oh, fucking wanky <laughs> bullshit saw at the RFF, but I have heard of those people. So fair play, fair play, mate. What else is out? Fantastic Beasts is out, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to see Nocturnal Animals, so maybe that will happen. You never know. You never know with this show. But yeah, one of these many great films. You never know what we're going to do. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And have a lovely week, everyone. Bye. Goodbye.